Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so excited to introduce Dr. Stefan Baral. He is a globally renowned researcher, public health practitioner, teacher, and mentor. He does stigma research in dozens of countries around the world. He's an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And he's also the director of the Key Populations Program, for the Center for Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you so much for being here today, Steph. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks for having me. And I think I actually know you before I ever met you because at the 2010 HIV uh, Global Conference in Vienna, my poster was beside Dr. Tonya Petit, who told me about you and encouraged me to come and spend time with you. And around the same time, I read one of your articles, which was a systematic review of gay, bisexual, and other sexually diverse men around the world and their HIV incidents, which you really eloquently described as being associated with stigma and discrimination. And then I remember I was doing a postdoc and I reached out to you and you kindly agreed to have me spend time with you, I believe in 2012. So I feel like I've known you for a little bit of time. Yeah, no, I mean, it was to say, I remember you coming well. And, and, and when you were there at Hopkins, we wrote the modified social ecological model, which I have used many, many times since. Others keep commenting. I really thought, and, and you know, it was, I think it was kind of a testament to you that you really should have been first on it because you'd done so much work in it, first author, because you'd really led it, and but you were insistent on not and wanting to kind of honor this process that you felt like it had been started before you got there. And But anyways, it was a sign of, I, I thought, just like a really mature way of working. And it was a mix of like work ethic and coming from the right place and Obviously, I've greatly enjoyed working with you since. So feelings of appreciation are absolutely mutual. Thank you so much. And something else I want the listeners to know is not only are you a very world famous researcher, but you are also an incredibly kind and generous mentor to, I don't even know, dozens and dozens of people across the world. So I just want to give a shout out to you. So I want to know... If I'm in the elevator with you and I say, tell me about your research, how do you describe it going up a few flights or floors? I always mix up flights, floors in an elevator, floors. Sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, at its core, I really have an interest in trying to understand why people continue to be at risk for HIV uh, acquisition. 
I think that, you know, as I've looked at that, I really feel like we absolutely have all the tools that we need in order to prevent somebody from acquiring and transmitting HIV while still having the sex that they want to have and enjoying themselves. And really the key barrier that you see in so many places, you know, is this sort of pervasive stigma that either affects sex in general, in terms of people enjoying having sex, whether that be sex between men, sex between women, sex between men and women, or just the engagement of their lives and living their lives and engaging in services that are appropriate for them. And I think what is so amazing is that all of our innovations as of late, HIV self-testing, digital delivery of services, et cetera, are all designed to overcome stigma. You know, at their core, what they are doing is to try to sort of work around what are pervasive attitudes of stigma at almost all levels of the healthcare system. And so it was really as a result of that, that I wanted to better understand stigma. And and I'll say briefly, although I, I recognize I'm probably more than a few floors now. I mean, sometimes you stay in the elevator when people are really- No problem. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll take it a little bit longer is to say that, <laughs> you know, 10 or 15 years ago, when you would, you would hear stigma being used intermittently, you know, it's part of the rhetoric. It became, you know, part of the global goal of, of UNA. It's part of the, of the, sort of global initiative around, you know, the prevention or achievement of an HIV-free future. But it was also apparent to me that it was just rhetoric. It wasn't something that we were measuring. And when you talk to people about measuring, often they only really measured sort of one form of stigma. And it really felt like there was a lot of opportunity to, to, to invest in, in better strategies of measurement and then ultimately better interventions to address it. That's great. Steph, I'm really interested in how you became passionate and committed to stigma. If I was to show up at your house right now with a time machine and say, take me back to the time and place where you started thinking that you wanted to focus on stigma, where would we go and what would you show me? In terms of career trajectories, uh, you know, I think maybe to, to, to keep it short, I ended up obviously absolutely trained in, in Canada for medical school and residency and ended up at the U.S. at Johns Hopkins with the Center of Public Health and Human Rights because of that focus on these intersections between health and human rights. And I had read a, a book that Chris Byer had written called War in the Blood, and it really spoke to me in terms of, you know, the reality of what he was talking about, although, you know, he was speaking also from the perspective of being a gay man and seeing gay men in the 80s and 90s affected in Asia and, and around the world and, have, and actually having had a husband that he lost HIV. But really talking about sort of the pervasive role of violence and how that ultimately affected people who use drugs as ability to seek services and the intersections of that with racism and, mm -hmm. and genocide in Burma among ethnic minorities and just, just this really complex picture. But it all, you know, that complexity really spoke to me. And I think that, you know, it, it, because we, we live in a very complex world and, and if the solutions were easy, it would have already been achieved. You know, the sort of easier wins in life, the ones that are purely biomedical are easier wins. And those are problems that have been solved, fortunately, and people live better and longer as a result. And the ones that are persistent, often it's because they are complex and they are at the intersection of like medical and social and structural issues. And so, you know, when I, and so I went to Hopkins in 2005 to work with Chris and we worked on a number of projects together and, and basically have continued to, 
you know, now coming on, on more than 16 years later. But, you know, when I started doing the work around the needs of gay men and other men who have sex with men and, and, and later on trans women, you know, we use language of human rights. And that, to me, it just spoke at its core because, again, it just felt like it was absolutely the heart of this. And Jonathan Mann had already identified that some years earlier, that there is no public health issue in the absence of human rights. Mm. And basically, there are no human rights violations that don't have health consequences. So that, I think, is an underlying fundamental truth, you know, again, spoke to me and felt like a space I wanted to, to really spend my life in. Now, when I got to places, different settings, when I talked about sort of measuring human rights and human rights violations, it really, I think because of a history of colonialism and, you know, structural racism at every level as being, you know, kind of understanding where I was coming from and going to countries and talking to about human rights violations, was very loaded and it was mm. very challenging. Like being the, the narrative of somebody from the West who's totally. going to come Coming and bring, here, bring human rights that, everywhere on the world. Well, <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Absolutely. Right. Like here I am in a country where probably I am, I represent, you know, and one has to know who they, who they represent, but I represent a generation of people who have caused the gravest of human rights violations in every way. And here I am, talking about, you know, human rights that are, by the way, reinforced by other folks who come in terms of evangelists mm -hmm. and businesses and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like there was some specific incidents that happened that made it such that I realized that coming at this from the perspective of human rights, is, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it, it meant that the conversations were not, we weren't kind of moving to a place where we could measure things and and engage in, in work. And when I started looking around at, you know, other framings that actually got at the same underlying constructs, it was absolutely stigma. Like racism is mm. stigma. Mm -hmm. You know, homophobia, homo prejudice is stigma. All of these things are are different forms of stigma or stigma related different attributes and different forms. And so probably in 2008, eight, when we launched that sort of next generation of studies, we really looked at measuring different forms of stigma. And we looked at the historical constructs. And that then brings me back to that, you know, that where I started this, where then we started looking at, well, how are people measuring stigma? And what, what are these constructs? And, and I think I've learned some really, I, I think, interesting things over the years. But it, I think that broader framing of how to measure it better, how to do it better, has been, you know, at the core of, of the studies ever since. And, and, and I'll note, a lot of that was about measurement. And then, you know, probably about now 10 years ago, as we had started doing studies in a lot of places, people were like, well, it's great that you're studying this, but what does this mm. mean from an interventional perspective? And, mm -hmm. and what are your ideas about doing something about it? Because you can only document something so many times before, you know, you need to start having a conversation like, well, what is a path forward? So yeah. that kind of resulted in more of this sort of interventional piece. So thank you so much for that. And it just shows your passion and commitment to this over decades and also from the documentation to the, well, what are we, you know, going to do with this information to help create change? So I want to ask you a question. What if someone says, who cares about stigma? We have everything we need now, like what you mentioned. We have self-testing, we have PrEP. You know, we have laws in some places, you know, um, around protecting people's rights. What's the big deal? What do you say? I mean, I, I think I think that the results ultimately speak for themselves in the sense that the, the global goal of around, you know, what was to have been achieved in 2020 
for HIV was that there were to be 500,000 new infections. And in the end, when we hit, you know, I was used to say we're now 800 days from 2020 and 500 days from 2020 and 80 days and 20 days. Now we're like, you know, well into 2020. (laughs) And, you know, we ended the year at about 1.75 million. So about three and a half times the number of infections that have been where the goal has been set. For 2030, the goal is set at zero new infections. And these are globally agreed upon goals and we're nowhere near. I mean, mm-hmm. just nowhere near. And, and so I think that, you know, the rhetoric around, you know, we have everything we need. And I, I agree with it. I think between PrEP and interesting testing strategies and, and better treatment strategies, and now, you know, the news around long acting PrEP and, and soon there'll be better integration of long acting treatment, like all those things are so important but it's just also so abundantly clear that what's happening with HIV is that it continues to concentrate in particular communities. And that concentration of risk is absolutely at the intersection of where rights are being infringed upon and where and where risk exists. And, mm-hmm. and the rights piece feels, you know, both of those actually are modifiable. Mm-hmm. The risk itself is actually a failure on, on policy for so many levels. Like people should be able to have sex and to be able to enjoy that sex. And, and the lack of ability to kind of create the opportunities for people to have safe and fun sex is, is a failure in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the idea that we not only fail to kind of create an opportunity to have for people to have the sex that they want to have, but then also to prevent them from engaging in services is to me at least a big part of like the between where we are and where we want to be. So I, I think that, you know, I often don't try to make the point in a lot of settings. I'm, I'm a big believer that like, you know, you can try and hammer down, you know, some issue that you think is important and try to convince somebody. Of, but, you know, the, the most success is really where somebody feels like, Hey, we're not, we're not achieving what we thought we would have achieved by now. Mm-hmm. We've, we've got into better treatment. We've got into better prevention services and we still haven't, you know, we still haven't kind of like achieved our main thing, which is really about reducing new infection. And, and that then presents an opportunity to look at, well, why, why is that? And, and so indeed, I think that, I don't think that it takes a lot of convincing for folks to now understand that like, there is something that has just like, we've just not been able to get at within a broader HIV response. And by the way, a a pandemic that continues to kill close to 2 million people a year. So just a tremendous amount of mortality, a tremendous amount of incidents. We just haven't been able to get there. And and then there's an opportunity to look at what are some of the reasons why. That's amazing. And I want to pick up on something you just said for the the next question, which you started answering. So I really appreciate that you you're bringing it to, well, we should care because we have these goals that we all agreed on and stigma is still getting in the way. You know, no matter how great our medical advances are, stigma is going to stop us from having them realize their full potential. So the next question is going to ask what you've actually touched on, which is what does stigma look like? And I really appreciate your work is so sex positive. And you mentioned stigma looks like some people not being able to ha- choose their sex partners, have enjoyable sex. And then you also started to mention that stigma also looks like people not being able to get the care they want. Could you give maybe the listeners an example of what stigma might look like in preventing people from accessing um, needed healthcare or HIV care or prevention? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think of it in sort of two flavors. So the first one is sort of like, 
stigma limiting the provision of services. And I actually think that like, you know, that happens all the way at the top. Like how does our desire to really fund and take take care of those that are most marginalized and with decisions again being made in like Washington DC and in Geneva and in Atlanta and 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 in countries all over the world, you know, headquarters, offices, et cetera, where there's large funding initiatives. You know, what how does stigma play out in those settings that even prevent, you know, the the sort of opportunities to even create funding for 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 mm. programs? So I think often we, you know, we sometimes let ourselves off the hook a little bit when not all the decisions, but but there is a there is a, a concentration of power in a lot of settings that and it's not just that they haven't overcome and sort of fought hard enough. It's that there is a lot of, of stigma in those settings that even prevent you know, resources from going out to really funding the needs as, the, as they exist. Or these assumptions like, you know, well, we need to really manage LGBT issues in Latin America and in Asia, but in Africa, it's just the, just the general population. And because so, they don't think people um, exist you know, so or, think, or they, you know, they're... Well, that's it. I think part of it's just their sort of general framing of, uh, and almost these assumptions. Uh, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, stigma exists in fascinating ways. Like, for example, like assumptions that people choose to have sex differently across Southern Africa, not based on data, not based on anything empiric, just based on just assumptions that people have. Mm-hmm. And and I think so, so there is stigma at that level. And that plays out all the way through because, you know, in the absence of any support, it's just really hard to, to kind of create sustainable programs. That's just a, a reality for, for anything. And then provision exists that even if there is funding for it, you know, we've seen it really interesting ways that policy opportunities that countries can use to kind of like negotiate down like particular programs. So like, okay, there was money for a particular grant for LGBT services, but they use that as like the way to cut 10%. It's just that they cut 100% of that program that cut 10% of the overall budget and now they came in under budget sort of thing. Mm. So this sort of like disproportionate attack on these programs is absolutely a way that this plays out. And then you get down all the way to like people trying to provide services. And then it is all the way to the most obvious of people being a Bible being pulled out when somebody (laughs) appears for services or discloses not being asked and so not having the opportunity to disclose and, and receive appropriate services. So you know, a cis guy only being asked that they're cis female partners and thus not really having an opportunity to mm-hmm. talk about it and, and to disclose all the way to like being thrown out of clinics and, and, and really kind of obvious things. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And then I think there's the second element around just uptake in terms of like, do I feel safe going to a facility disclosing, you know, that I enjoy, for example, if I'm a cis gay man, that I enjoy having sex with other men and I do have sex with other men. And, you know, and that's as a result of my own experiences, as well as the experiences of others. And so Mm -hmm. if if somebody comes to me and a good friend of mine says to me, listen, I went to that clinic and I had a a sexually transmitted infection, like an analyst sexually transmitted infection. And they were, you know, it was a terrible experience. Like, I'm not going to disclose Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to do that because yeah. like, why would I like, what would I see as the upside in an ideal world? There is an upside because I'd be provided sort of better services, but in, in, in the world we live in there, there, you just feel like I'm not going to either, I'm not going to seek care or I'm not going to disclose. 
And, you know, whatever happens as a result of that happened. And so I, I mean, I think that the way stigma plays out is complex, but I, I think we often just focus on like, you know, well, the healthcare worker treating somebody badly, which is common. But I think, you know, we really have to think about it at, you know, at multiple levels and look at ourselves a lot in the mirror before we get all the way down to like, you know, kind of thinking about the, the, that clinician in, in a particular setting. I was part of a, a group of uh, like journalist students years ago, went to Malawi from UCLA and they interviewed providers that we had worked with. And a lot of them also said, listen, like we actually are not inherently against LGBT, you know, around LGBT issues. And in fact, we have, you know, we know folks amongst us that are LGBT without getting into details. But there's almost like a like a peer pressure stigma to to do that within amongst them that like so it's just to say like it, it was just it's complex on many levels and we really need to think about those upstream issues before we really just focus almost exclusively on the downstream ones. I totally appreciate that because a lot of times it's easy to point the finger at an individual rather than to see that they're part of a larger system that doesn't include LGBT training and medical or nursing education sure. or social services and that doesn't necessarily fund constant learning and training or hiring of people policies. So it's actually really great that you painted this really broad picture of what it looks like across many different dimensions. So I have one last stigma question before I ask you a few really quick wild cards. What can the listeners do? How can they be part of a solution to stigma? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I think a lot of it depends on where they come from and, and what it is that they do. But I think, you know, whenever they see somebody present a really simple answer, like the answer is X, hmm. you know, I think that questioning where different forms of stigma, and again, like stigma is racism, stigma is mm -hmm. homonegativity, stigma is absolutely, you know, different forms of, you know, it can be anti-Semitism, it can be everything fits in under the framing of stigma. I, I think it's, it's like incumbent upon the reader to ask, like, where do these really clear structural issues play into these disparities that you're observing? Mm. And when you present this sort of simple path forward, I think that it'll just naturally evolve out of the question, depending on if they're a researcher, to ask those questions scientifically. If they're a member of the media, to ask those questions of researchers. If they're a member of the public, to always remind their policymakers and others about like these pervasive effects that negative attitudes toward particular communities will have and to not forget those as we think about the strategies moving forward. How you address it, it comes from, you know, what it is you do and the hat that you wear. But I think people being reminded of it, asked about it is important because there's almost always now data to support it. You know, we're not in a data desert as we were, I think, a number of years ago around these things. And so if people look for it, I think they'll, they'll find it. I love that. And I, I really think that's probably a message that we don't hear enough. A lot of times you hear, oh, keep it simple. But actually, sometimes it's really complex as politics and histories of colonization and current global policies and religion. It's so the situation is actually made up of so many different dynamics that a, a simple answer might might overlook those and might play into different stereotypes about people. That's right. 
So thank you so much. I don't know if there's anything, I mean, you've been very powerful and concise in, in your descriptions of stigma. So I don't know if there's any last things you wanted to add before I let the listeners learn a little bit more about you. No, I mean, I think, you know, I think about this a lot. So I think I could go on for a long period of time, but I, but I, I would just say that I think there's, you know, a really good and growing amount of researchers and science in this space that, you know, allows us to really consider this framing in almost everything that we face as, as a society. And, and I think it kind of goes back to this framing around public health and human rights that it just they're so intricately linked and in every way. And if you have that framing and, and you can think of it as an equity framing, to me, an equity framing is also a different form of a stigma framing because to address mm -hmm. inequities and injustices, a big part of that is stigma. And so I think that it's like, to me, all roads lead to stigma. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just, if, if people really pay attention to it, they may find themselves in a similar place. Now, what to do about it is important and requires thought. That is complex, but it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really, it's super important work. Thank you. And I'm going to have a link to your bio, your website, and um, you know, that perhaps highlight some of your publications because you have an excellent, re really recent one on COVID and the heterogeneity within people's experiences. So I know we're um, out of time, but I have three really quick questions Great. to show the fun element of you. Are you binging anything on Netflix right now? I just binged the last season about Michael show? Jordan. It's oh, about Michael oh. Jordan. And you know what I'll say? The reason that I binged it is because I really love when people are amazing at their craft mm. and are ready to work hard. And I think that, you know, the, what he does and, I don't, you know, the, the, I don't know if, if you saw Free Solo, like Alex Honnold, like there are certain folks in the world that are so amazing at what, what they do. It doesn't matter what they do. Like he's a basketball player. Mm -hmm. Alex Honnold is a, a climber. But just when you see that excellence at their craft combined with just this incredible work ethic, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And, and, and yeah, so that is worth watching. Okay, I'm definitely going to watch it. It's been on the shortlist. We keep watching long movie series, so we watch yeah, all and of the I'm fast not a sports and person. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I don't really watch sports, but this is not about sports. It's about excellence. That's great. And I think uh, for me, everything I've seen you do comes from a place of excellence. So that's wonderful. So I want to ask you, number two, if you could go, imagine there's no COVID-19. If you could go anywhere in the world for dinner with anybody in the world, living or dead, who would you go with? Where would you go? I really, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I come, I think, I think you know this, that, that pre-COVID and, and I'm sure the, and moving forward, I travel a lot and, mm -hmm. and I, I traditionally traveled a lot. So sometimes, you know, maybe I'll put myself in the, in the pre-COVID area that like, in some ways, like, my favorite place in the world to be is kind of like backyard with my kiddo. Mm, in your hot tub. Very simple. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not, not that it works, but that's a different issue. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's really, I think it's, there's an element that I, I so love being around the world, but I also really value being home. So part of what COVID has done is this like appreciation of just like home mm. and and you know and, and that that actually will stick with me for some time so that's you know that's amazing so you didn't say what you would eat would you get some queen margarita pizza delivered what would you do yeah so what would i eat like what is my favorite food to eat uh, yeah i am what would i eat i you know what's interesting about me is that i've never really valued 
eating. Although if I was to be able to eat anything, if my friend Dauda Juf would know this, that I love a uh, chuff, which is Senegalese fish. So I think that might be hard to eat that in, in, in my backyard, but I will say, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, maybe if I'd go to one travel place is, is sitting in the car, which is a place that I spend a lot of time in and have been going to for many, many years is being there and eating like seafood that fishermen catch every day and then uh, Dauda has a place where he grew up called Tubab Jalau, which is like half an hour from Dakar, um, near where actually the new airport is in, in, in Dakar. And they literally fish all day long and then they catch it and then you eat it within like, you know, I, I don't know, like within like an hour. Amazing. Of like like on the beach. Great fish. <laughs> and um, yeah, like, well, you get yeah, like a block up. Nice. It's almost like linked to a photo from, from his, uh, you know, with, with the podcast, but it's, it's like, it's truly, it's truly heaven in every way. And Senegal is, is like that. It's this amazing place, but eating seafood with the family, his family, which is where I normally eat. And, and, and I have been for many years is one of my favorite places to that's, be and eat. So that that's food amazing. is kind of unbelievable. And I'll also note the mangoes, which I have brought back to Canada, although don't tell Canada customs. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sent back. Our, the Senegalese mangoes during mango season are unbelievable. And, I, I and miss just, mangoes so much, like growing yeah. where, eating them where they actually grow, not like trying to ship them in boxes and find them when they're ripe. Okay, so I know we're almost out of time. I just want to ask you your, the last question. I really would love to come to the beach with you guys and, and eat some of that fresh fish one day. <laughs> so my last question, I know that some of the best advice I've ever gotten has been from you. What is a piece of advice you'd like to share with the listeners that has been helpful or meaningful to you? One of the things that I see people often do is discounting their own ideas before the ideas ever get to see the world. And it's almost like people, the smarter they are, the more likely sometimes they are to discount their Mm. ideas before those ideas get to like enter the world. Wow. What that also means is that like people without those fears and those, you know, almost self-awareness and self being self-critical, their ideas go to the world. And people who are so thoughtful Mm. ideas sometimes get censored. So I just would, you know, I mean, I just really value when people like own their comments, run with them. And I know that there's a long history, by the way, of just like intersections of like misogyny and racism and that, that sometimes do those things and cause that to be the case. So I'm not discounting those experiences, but I really would, you know, would encourage people to like own their ideas and, and put them out to the world, write those papers that they're thinking about, do those projects, write those grants speak up when, you know, when they're in a group setting, etc. I, I feel like sometimes when people are like, you know, I just, there was one thing I was going to say, but I didn't want to say in front of everybody. And then mm. they say like the most insightful thing I've ever heard that would have changed the tone of the entire conversation and maybe even changed the decision wow. made at the end of whatever <laughs> meeting you're in. And so it just feels like that that might be one thing to consider is to just to do their, to, to always consider that their ideas have merit and to put them out and, you know, defend them and own them. Thank so. you so much. That is such a, a uplifting and empowering way to end. Um, thank you again, Great. everybody. Dr. Stefan Baral. I will have a link to his work in his bio and we'll even have a link to the beautiful place in Senegal. Yeah. <laughs> Jalau. Absolutely. That thank you so much. That it'll get them. My first podcast. Okay, great. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye, Carmen. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's talk about stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.